The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father, thank you for this evening, a chance to be together as people of God and study more about prayer. Thank you, O Lord, that just like worship, uh, in which you tell us what we are to do for worship, so also in the scriptures you instruct us on how to pray. Uh, We don't know how to pray, and uh, we ask, O Lord, that you would teach us to pray um, with uh, the teaching of the Word of God. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to pick up the second half of last week's study on praying the promises of God. And I'd like to urge you to begin uh, tonight's study by looking at James chapter 5. So open your Bibles to James chapter 5 and we'll begin there. And uh, begin at verse 17. If somebody would be willing to read James 5, 17 and 18, uh, we can start there. We'd like to do that. Anyone want to do that? Some public scripture reading tonight? So you came here not knowing you're going to read scripture. Okay, go ahead, brother. Thank you. Thank you. So Elijah was a man just like us. He had the same nature as we do. Um, Why does James tell us that? Why does he say Elijah was a man of like nature to us? He's just like us, just a man like us. Why does James tell us that? Yeah, yeah, he's a super spiritual man. You know, he floats away from us and can no longer really do us any good. Yeah, well, that was Elijah. I mean, we all know about him. So we don't have to do anything about that because he was a super person. And James is saying, no, he's just a human being. He's just just a flesh and blood human being. What does James then tell us about Elijah? He was a man just like us, and what did he do? Prayed earnestly for what? No, that's not what it says. That it would not rain. Now, what an odd thing. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Now, what kind of man is that? And as a matter of fact, King Ahab, remember when he saw him at one point, said, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Remember that? He calls him a troubler of Israel. Why? Because it's his fault that there was no rain. Why would Elijah pray that there would be no rain? Why would he do that? So the people wouldn't know who is God. So they wouldn't what? So they wouldn't know who is God. Okay. Okay. Because the people were vigorously into idolatry at that point. They had clearly turned their back on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not being faithful to the covenant. And so he prayed that God would keep his promise. And remember how God gave uh, to Israel blessings and cursings. Remember when they entered the promised land. And uh, there were a lot more curses than there were blessings. You know, it goes on at length about the curses. And one of the curses was that God would make the sky above them like iron and the ground beneath them like bronze. In Deuteronomy 11, he said, I will close up the sky so that it will not rain. So Elijah read that and said, we have met the criteria God, do what you promised you would do. Now, you would say, now, wait a minute. This is not what I think of when I think of a promise, okay? Generally, when I think of praying the promises of God, I think of something good, okay? But this is a good thing, isn't it? Everything God does is good. Why was it good for God to shut up the sky so that it would not rain? Yes. Okay. Okay, so it shows his, his glory on display. Why, why else is it good that, yeah? It could lead them to repentance. Let's realize everything short of hell is grace. You understand that? I mean, a disease that you have while here on earth is still grace because you're still alive. Everything short of dying and going to hell is grace from God. And so when God sends hardship on sinners still in this world, He's showing them grace by giving them opportunities to repent, to come up short, to be warned of future, future trouble, uh, namely dying and going to hell. And so God is showing them grace 
by uh, closing up the sky so that it will not rain. So Elijah is asking God to keep his promise. And so this precedes Elijah's sudden appearance in Scripture. He just pops up out of nowhere. You know, 1 Kings 17, there is Elijah the Tishbite, out of nowhere. And he says, as the Lord your God lives, there will be no rain on the land except by my word. And off he goes, just disappears. What an enigmatic figure he is. You know, uh, but he had already done his praying and God had already communicated to him what his will was. So uh, he knew that there would be no rain. And interesting that he says, accept it, my word. In other words, God had showed him that he was in a specific place, that his prayer life and his calling as a prophet of God had lifted him to that place as being somewhat of a mediator, a go-between between God, who is angry at Israel, and the people. And so he said, just so you know, there'll be no rain unless I say so. <laughs> I mean, that's about what he's saying. Accept it, my word means unless I say so. Okay, there it goes. And then you know the story uh, about how the Lord provides for him by the brook Cherith and all that. I'm not going to go into all that. But then uh, if you look at First Kings 18, go ahead and turn there. Um, First Kings uh, chapter 18. So he pops up in, verse, in chapter 17, says there'll be no rain. But then First uh, Kings 18 and... Uh, Verse 1. Somebody read that one, if you would. First Kings 18, 1. Now it came about after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Okay. Now that is a promise that you can recognize a little bit more winsomely at this point. So there's a good promise. What is God telling uh, Elijah there? Pretty obvious. The time has come for the rain to come. And again, this is a promise as well. That God had said that when the people turned back, if they prayed toward the temple that Solomon set up, actually Solomon asked for this, Lord, if they repent and they turn, that would you please open up the sky? And if there's been drought, would you send rain? That's what Solomon prayed for. But God said he would do this. And now it's a clear promise. I mean, we don't even have to wonder about Solomon's prayer or any of this. Elijah is told directly by God, go and show yourself, I will send rain. That's a promise. Okay, so what happens in the rest of the chapter? Well, you remember the big contest with the with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and all of that stuff that happens and and how um, you remember how there's this big contest and and he says how long will you keep limping between two opinions? If if Baal is God, then worship him, and if Yahweh is God, then worship him. But the people remain silent, waiting to see. You know. They didn't have any clear inclination either way. How wicked is that? I mean, how many more things does God need to do to prove, it, prove himself? But uh, they don't say anything. And so uh, all of this thing has been set up. And you just need to read what Elijah says because he says in his prayer, he says, Lord, please show them that I've done all of these things at your command. So he's not a freelancer. He's not thinking this up. The whole contest between him and the prophets of Baal was something God told him to do. And so they set up this contest. The contest consisted of setting up two different sacrifices, two different altars, two, two different animals, uh, and the God who answered by fire from heaven, he is God. Well, the people thought that was great. They answered that time. Yeah, sounds good to us. They're excited. You know, it's going to be somewhat of a display, and it was. And you remember what happens, how the prophets of Baal dance around and do all this sort of stuff, and nothing happens. No one was there. No one answered. No one at all. Because there is no one. There is no one called Baal. He doesn't exist. Um, and so after that had run its course, the time had come for Elijah to put on display the power of God. Really an awesome thing. And you know what he does. He has them bring water and they pour water on and they do it again, do it a third time. And the thing is swimming in water. All right. Um, somewhat almost it has the feel of almost like a Broadway magic show, like a David Copperfield kind of thing, you know, where, you know, boy, watch what God, as though just answering from, from heaven with fire isn't enough, we'll add the water. That's an even bigger miracle, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But at any rate, the thing is just drowning in water. And then the prayer is really quite remarkable. Oh, Lord, show them that you are God and that I've done these things at your command. Answer me, O oh Lord. Just a very simple prayer, similar to Jesus' prayer in front of Lazarus' tomb. It's not that. It's just what does God will. And then God answers with fire. Fire comes down from heaven and burns up the sacrifice and the altar and the... Uh, the water and the stones, everything has its melting point. It all gets evaporated. All of it's gone. And the people fall down and they say, the Lord, he is God. You remember that. And then he orders that the prophets of Baal be collected up and killed. 
All right? Well, go back again to 1 Kings 18, verse 1. Okay, 1 Kings 18, 1. Go ahead and read it again. I don't have to be the same person, but just read it. What does it say? After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Okay, and I will send what? Rain. Well, where's the rain? All we've seen is fire from heaven. I'm thinking that fire and water are two different things. There hasn't been any rain. So there's still some hugely unfinished business, isn't there? And so what does he do? After all of this stuff with the prophets of Baal is dealt with, he goes and prays for rain. You remember that? And he kneels down and he prays and there's nothing. There's no cloud in the sky. There's nothing. And then uh, he says, go and look and see if you can see a cloud. And his servant goes and there's no cloud. And he says, go back a second time. And there's still no cloud. And he says, go back a third time. He says, well, actually, there now there's a cloud about the size of a man's hand, just a little cloud. He said, well, you better get running because the rain's coming. You remember that whole thing? Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the Lord sent rain and the land produced its crop. Yes. He certainly did. I mean, after this whole encounter, he runs and the spirit of the Lord was on him and he ran ahead of Ahab in his chariot, outrunning the horses, which is quite an achievement. Um, and uh, then he finds out that uh, Ahab's wife Jezebel doesn't like him and, you know, makes a vow by the gods that, you know, he's going to be killed. And then he loses his courage and runs for his life. He's just, a, he's just a human being. And that's the, that's the point that James is making. He, he struggled too. And remember how he's laying under the broom tree and, you know, he wants to die. He's just like Jonah at this point. I've had enough. Kill me, you know. And the Lord sends a biscuit and a jar of water and you need to eat. And, you know, it's just a whole, the whole thing is very, very uh, revealing. But the focus I want to get, begin our study on tonight is Elijah was a man just like us and he prayed based on the promises of God. That's what he's doing. He's taking God's word and he's showing it to him, in effect. God, you said you would do this. Now do it. On both ends. God, you said that you would, you would close up the sky and that it would stop raining. Please do it. That these people might be reclaimed from their wicked idolatry. And then God initiates, all right, it's enough, it's enough now. Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain. That's a promise. And so he basically then prays it back. And I have a feeling he would have done it 70 times. Go back and look again. I'm going to be here until you send, until the Lord sends rain. The Lord had told him that there would be rain. And that's uh, the vital thing. So for me, foundational to this whole study of prayer is that we would not waste our time praying for things that God will not give us, that we would more and more learn to pray uh, for those things that God will give us. And uh, so last week we talked about all of the lavish blessings or promises from God concerning just prayer generally. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Matthew 21, 22. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. There are many such promises. That's what we studied last time. General promises concerning prayer. Uh, the purpose of prayer, then, we have uh, learned, is absolutely not to change God's mind. We are not in the business of changing God's mind. God has ever already worked out every single detail. Do you believe that? Or are we, are we tempted toward open theism? That God is making this up as he goes along and isn't really quite certain. Well, if you don't know, then just read Ephesians 1 and verse 11, which says quite plainly, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Uh, how, how much should we believe that word everything? Has God worked out most things in conformity with the purpose of his will or everything? Well, we're going to believe that he has worked out everything. And by the way, you might say, well, that might just be everything concerning the salvation of the elect, those that are predestined. 
but other things are still kind of wide open to chance. Well, first of all, that whole view doesn't understand just how complex this whole human system is. How many things contribute to our salvation? I mean, many things. It's a complex system. Everything's all working together. But that's not even what the verse says. It just says, oh, by the way, he's the God who works out everything conforming with the purpose of his will. He's not talking about you know, it's almost like the conversion or the salvation of the elect or the predestined is a subset of the everything that God's worked out already. So, I mean, to me, that's a comprehensive statement. Also, it says in Matthew 10:29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that the will of God is a comprehensive thing. He's looking even to something that you would consider very small. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He's setting the price on a sparrow or two sparrows even. You know, and what he's saying is that they are very of very little worth in the economy there of Israel. And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of the father. What he's saying there is that God's plan rules over all things. Proverbs 16 and verse nine in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So you can make all the plans you want. It's God who decides what you'll what you'll do, the steps you'll take. Proverbs 16:33. the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I mean, the, the role of the dice, Proverbs 19 and 20, 21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purpose of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purpose of his heart through all generations. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. I mean, that's very, very plain. He's saying, what I have decided that I will do, I will do. And nobody can stop me. Isaiah 46 and verse 10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Okay? So, again, my point here is that in prayer, we are not in any way seeking to adjust or change the plan of God. Yes, Susan. Susan. But he is the boss and we are the people that carry out his plan. And we'll get to that in a moment. The point is, I'm going to ask a couple of key questions right here on the page. Namely, if all this is true, then why should we pray at all if God is going to accomplish his purpose anyway? And since we don't ask anything, want to ask anything outside of his will, how can we pray more accurately the plans of God? So those are the things we'll get to. But let me talk about the uh, Moses interceding, okay? What did God threaten? To wipe out the entire nation and make of Moses a new nation. Remember that? Well, there's a problem with that. You know what the problem is? The problem is the, the prophetic blessings given by Jacob over each of the tribes, including over Judah. Okay? As a patriarch, he was speaking words of prophecy over each of his 12 sons and the tribes that would follow, including Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom it belongs. Who's that referring to? Well, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is God really going to wipe out Judah then? There's no more Judah? He's gone? No. So what's God doing? Bluffing? Well, it's you know, not bluffing, but clearly he is testing Moses. All right, and he wants Moses to do the very thing he knows Moses will do. Michael. I was just going to ask the same question in the same context. Okay. Um, I guess to extend the question, was God in some way setting Moses up to be in a position where he had to play back the promise that God had made? Because that was his response. Right. Yeah, I think so. And I think that that's really a very wise insight Michael's giving. Basically, what happens is that God providentially moves you to the place where you just see what God wants you to do and do it. I, I, I think it's, it's that we do rightly choose. We do make choices. You know, uh, Martin Luther wrote against Erasmus on this issue, the bondage of the will. Jonathan Edwards, I think, looking a little bit deeper, wrote on the freedom of the will. And, and, and they're really both teaching the same thing. It's really on how you look at it. But we are free to choose what we love. 
We are free to choose to do what we love. That's what Edwards taught. And so what I'm, what I'm saying is that basically Moses loved the will of God more after that whole experience than before. He loved the glory of God more. He loved the name and the honor of God more. And wasn't that an important part in Moses' own salvation? And isn't that a lesson for all of us? Isn't that the very quote that, that, uh, that you know, went after that experience and then he goes through and, and then as he has more time with God, he says, now show me your glory. That's the yearning of his heart. And he says, I will pass all of my goodness in front of you. And, and he says, I will, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion whom I have compassion. And that's the very quote that Paul brings out in his sovereignty, a chapter in Romans 9, that it's just a beautiful thing. And what's the context? Well, it's the golden calf and, and all the things that were going on and, and the prayer that God just, as you said, as you alluded to, I think, brought out or just drew out of Moses. Okay, but all I'm saying is it just biblically makes sense that in, in our clear kind of rational sort of moments as we're sitting here learning and we can all nod, Lord, we know we're not teaching you anything you didn't know. We're no, we know we're not giving you options you haven't thought about. We know you've already worked out everything perfectly, that you have looked at infinite universes and possibilities and have rejected all except this one that we're following now, and that you've seen far deeper than we can ever see, and you know far more. I know all that in prayer. Yeah, but do you really know it? No, I guess I really don't. I want to have a sense of the infinite wisdom of God and the infinite goodness of God and his mercy. I want to have a greater sense of that. And prayer is a big part of that. So I think it's good for us to go over these verses and just know you're not kneeling down in your prayer closet to teach God anything. Neither are you there to convince him to be loving. You know, it really is quite ironic when you think about it. You know, we the great loving people, we the ones who love so much and so well, teaching God about love. You know, the scripture says God is love. Are we love? Are you love? <laughs> Are you even loving? Sometimes I wonder about that, but that we would educate God on love. It'd be like somebody, you know, in a nursing home wanting to get together with Usain Bolt and teach him how to sprint and how to do a little running, all right? It's like, what a joke. I mean, this is the fastest man that ever lived. And, you know, these folks need a walker, you know, and so, but it's even bigger than that. We are not loving and God is love. And so it's not like that at all. We are not wise and God is. So there's no attribute that we can say, yes, but God's got, you know, he's got, he's got some strengths, but there's this weak area here. And if I could just kind of bolster that through my prayer, there's none of that. We know it. You just know it. As it says beautifully in Romans 11:34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his his counselor. Would you like to be God's counselor? You know, you can get a picture of, you know, the, the king sitting on his throne. And then there's that man standing behind him. And at a key moment, he kind of leans over and whispers something in his ear. And the king kind of nods while he's listening to the case. And then Ahithophel, you know, just giving that. Are you going to be God's Ahithophel, giving him some wise counsel? Who's going to be God's counselor? He doesn't need a counselor. And even if he did, like it's hints at it, Psalm 50, I wouldn't ask you. All right, that's about what he's saying. If I needed a counselor, it wouldn't be you. So what is going on in prayer? Well, it isn't any of that. All right, we have a limited perspective, limited wisdom, and it's foolishness for us to go to God in prayer to teach him anything. Actually, the Bible makes it clear, without help from God, we don't know what to pray for. I mean, isn't that true? And, and all of us will assent to it. I don't know what to pray for. How many situations are you in in your life where you honestly can say that? I really just don't know how to pray about this. And it's the scripture that tells us that. Providence or experience teaches us that, but the scripture teaches that. You know, it says in, in uh, Romans 8.26, in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Is that weakness? Is it weakness on our part that we don't know what to pray for? Absolutely, that's weakness. We are weak in faith. We are weak in our perspective. So we need help. And so the Spirit helps us uh, to intercede. So as I've already touched on, but we have these two key questions. If all this is true, then why should we pray? Yeah, I mean, you wonder, I've struggled with that my whole Christian life. I've confessed that to you many times before. I, I have to overcome it sometimes in order to have a good prayer time. You know, I'm kneeling down here and saying, Lord, you know. But doesn't that show just a faulty kind of mechanistic engineering kind of view of prayer? Like, I'm here to get some things done, God. You know, um, and if you're already going to do them, then I don't need to be here. Well, that's just, there's something wrong there. 
uh, with my perspective on prayer. But I answer it in four ways. Let's, let's look at the second key question is, we don't want to ask for anything outside of his will, then how can we pray according to his will? If, if I just want to pray God's will back to him, then what is it? How do I know what that will is? Clay, you going to say something? Clay? Okay. What does this mean? All right, never mind. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's raining. Oh, all right, all right. So, are you thinking that's Elijah still at it? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> okay, well, at any rate, um, so moving on. All right, let's answer the first question. First question, why should we pray at all if God is going to accomplish his purposes anyway? All right, four answers. There are probably 40 more or many more. But uh, answer number one, because God ordains not only the ends, the ultimate purposes, but also the means to the ends. God has ordained that prayer will be effective to bring about the plans of God. God makes his plans, in some cases, dependent on human actions, including prayer. Now, you may say that doesn't make much sense to me. Well, that's okay. That's okay that it doesn't make much sense. God has said he'll answer prayer about this. So go pray about it. And you can say, well, suppose I don't pray. Will it still happen? Well, to me, I just don't look at it that way. I think that God will make the prayer effective, just like he knows who his elect are, and he will make evangelism, in their case, effective. And if you say, well, would they get saved without evangelism? There are two different ways I can answer that. One is no, and so therefore there needs to be an evangelist to go tell them. And that is a valid answer. The other is it's a ridiculous question. Because God has ordained that there will be evangelism in their case, and therefore there will be. So he has involved us, and there is, if you wanted to use, use that labor, that, 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 sorry, that expression that Paul does, co-labor, we are co- If you misunderstand that as co-equal with God, don't. We are not co-equal with God, you know? Um, Paul settles that in so many different ways, but he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. So even his own work, he gives credit to the grace of God uh, for it. All right, so God has ordained the means to the end, and mysteriously, one of the means to his end here in redemptive history is prayer, that if you pray the will of God back to him, he will answer and we'll make progress here. And it's been going on now for 20 centuries. Secondly, a second answer is we pray to kindle our own hearts to love the work of God, the will of God, the purposes and plans of God. When we fervently pray for someone to come to Christ and that person does come to Christ, our joy and involvement is far greater than if we didn't. So prayer does have a transforming effect on us. Okay, the first one is, you know, put, I think, rather coarsely or simply, you could use this language. You know, somebody asked, does, does prayer change things? And the answer is yes, prayer changes things. Well, change, changes from what? From the way it is now to now it's different? Yes. From the sovereign plan of God, Calvin, you might want to just sit forward and put your legs forward. There you go. You're scaring me. I don't know what you're doing. This is not a rocking chair. All right. <laughs> um, prayer does, in fact, change things here in space and time, but they don't change things from the plan of God. So if that's how you want to ask the question. Secondly, prayer does change us. It does. Good prayer changes us. Thirdly, therefore, similar to that, very similar, we pray to grow in our own sanctification that we would love God more and that sin, uh, which is essentially self-centeredness, would be driven from us. Basically, we go through life saying, I don't care about these things. They don't matter much to me and I need to be changed. And we pray to build a relationship with God. I mean, God wants to relate to us. I mean, think about it this way. In, uh, with the Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, God begins the whole conversation. Remember that whole thing? And we have the thoughts of God. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do since he will become such a great man in the future and all that? What is God saying? He's saying, I want a relationship with Abraham. In another place, and he was called God's friend. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to include us. He wants us to share uh, in what he's doing. So those are four answers. There are many others as well. Second question, how should we discern God's will so that we can pray effectively? The answer, I think, the central answer is read the word of God. If you want to know what God's will is and what he's doing in the world, the the best place by far is the Bible. Read the word of God. And in this way, we can find out what he's doing. And one of the best ways then to pray accurately the will of God is to pray the promises of God back to him. So in other words, that God makes promises and that we then bring those promises back to God and say, this is what you have promised to do. That's the topic that we're studying tonight. Obviously, if God has promised to do something, then that thing is, in fact, in the will of God. Doesn't it make sense? If God says, I will do this, then that's got to be in the will of God. We wouldn't be praying amiss then. Uh, by the way, there are other ways. I would, I would add two. There's one on the page. I'll give you a third. Okay, how do we pray according to the will of God? Pray the promises of God back is one way. Okay, 
Uh, secondly, pray the commands of God back to him. Like when God commands you to be holy because he is holy, then we can pray, God, make me holy. Because that's clearly his will, isn't it? You know, if God commands certain things, and you know, I've got this quote here from Augustine in which he talks about sexual purity. He, he, this is from Confessions. He says, my whole hope is in your exceedingly great mer mercy and that alone. Give what you command and command what you will. By the way, God doesn't need Augustine to tell him to command what you will. God's going to command what he wills. But at any rate, the fact of the matter is, he's saying, God, if we're going to have this conversation, if you're willing to give everything you command, then go ahead and command anything you want. So has he commanded that we should be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect? Has he, is there a command in the Scripture that we should be perfect? Well, yes, then, then you can pray, so Lord, make me perfect as you are perfect. And you could say, well, that prayer is really not going to be answered in this world. Well, it is going to be answered ultimately. Someday you will be perfect because Heavenly Father is perfect. So there you go. You can pray the commands of God back to him. A third thing you can do is pray the prayers that are recorded in Scripture. Pray Paul's prayers. You know, D.A. Carson wrote a whole book on this. So you just find out how Paul prays and pray like that. Pray the kinds of things he does. Look, look what Jesus prays for in John 17. Pray those things. And those are three different ways you can pray the will of God. We'll just focus on this one, and that is praying the promises of God. All right, how important are the promises in redemptive history? First of all, why does God make promises at all? Okay. What, what he's doing. Okay. So God likes to say ahead of time what he's going to do. You know, promises uh, are similar to predictions, but they're a little different. I mean, what is a promise? Adrian? An oath, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Something I, I promise to do this. I will do this for you in this relationship, like a marriage vow. Generally, I mean, despite my initial example of rain not coming on the earth, we generally think of promises as something good or some blessing that God will do for us in the future. God has told us he will do this good thing in the future. You know, so it's some future blessing that God will give to a people. There are different kinds of promises, unconditional and conditional, for example. There are conditional promises, if you do this, then I will do that. Um, or there are unconditional promises, I just will do this or I will not do that, that kind of thing. Uh, those are different promises that God makes. And they are absolutely, I mean absolutely fundamental to redemptive history. I mean, you understand that, don't you? They're absolutely fundamental. Okay. How was Abraham justified? How was he forgiven for his sins? By faith in what? A promise. If that promise hadn't been given, there'd be nothing for him to believe, you see? But he said, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the promise and it was credited him as righteousness. We have, it says in Hebrews, better promises than Abraham had. We do. We just have better promises than so shall your offspring be. We just do. Uh, Hebrews tells us that, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood as the covenant of which he is me mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. Boy, the book of Hebrews gives you permission to say a lot of bold things about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. It's just a better covenant, better promises. It's just better all the way. And so we, we've got these great promises. It's founded on better promises. And notice that it's founded on better promises. The new covenant is founded on promises. Just take it from that. What does that mean? That the new covenant is founded on promises. Okay. Yeah, it means me. It's composed of promises, it's based on promises. Promises are essential to the whole thing. We've got to have these promises. So if they're not just, these aren't ancillary or kind of extra things. This is foundational. This is the key. So we have these better promises. Uh, Hebrews 10, 22 uh, and 23 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. These are incredible statements, again, in the book of Hebrews. But what he's saying is, he who promised, God who made the promise, he will keep his promises. So therefore, let us draw near to God with hope-filled hearts. That's what he's saying, because God is such a faithful promiser. 
He's going to keep his promises. Beautiful statement. And then 2 Peter 1 uh, talks about how important promises are. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, through these, we have his very great and precious promises so that by them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Wow, what an incredible you know, effect of divine promises. By the divine promises, we may share in the divine nature. We may become like God. We may be conformed to God or godliness or Christ-likeness by those promises. So because of that, because of these promises, then he says, uh, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So strive in your sanctification. Make efforts to grow because God is faithful to keep his promises that someday you'll be conformed to Christ. Promises then, I'm, all I'm contending right now is the promises of God are essential to the new covenant and to our salvation. We must have them. And we have these promises here and assurances that God will keep his promises. Yes, Susan, go ahead. You know, broadly we could say, broadly we could say that, uh, you know, it, it all depends how you look at it, okay? It says in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, who hopes for what he already has? I think I could also say who hopes for what he doesn't want? Okay, we never hope for something you don't want. So basically then, we're talking about positive things or good things that in some way display the glory of God and will bring about the joy of his people. But you could really argue that anything God does, anything that God does is in that category. Even, you know, the weeding out, I will weed out of this world everything that causes sin and all those who do evil and send all of it to hell. You could say, well, is that a good thing or not? I think it absolutely is a good thing because God's going to do it. So all of that, but I think promises, we generally tend to think of those things for which we can hope or our hope is set on them. So promises are good things in the future that God said he will do. There are some quotes here on the promises I like. Uh, there are many such, but I love these. Thomas Manton said, One way to get comfort is to plead the promises of God in prayer. Show him his handwriting. God is tender of his word. I've quoted that many times. I just love it. Basically, that's what Moses does. Now, God, you said such and such. Now do it. That kind of thing. And we'll see, we'll see examples of it. Uh, Christopher Ness said, uh, When God hath not a mouth to speak, men must not have a tongue to ask. So... In other words, don't pray for things that aren't promised, all right? Uh, pray according to the promises. I think that's what it's saying there. William Grinnell says, Furnish thyself with arguments from the promises to enforce thy prayers and make them prevalent with God or prevail on God based on those promises. The promises are the ground of faith and faith when strengthened will make thee fervent and such fervency ever speeds and returns with victory out of the field of prayer. The mightier any is in the word, the more mighty he will be in prayer. So again, I'm answering that question. The second question, how can we pray according to the will of God? And the promises are a really fertile way to do that. Look at the, what God has promised and pray those things. That's what I'm advocating. Okay, well, let's look at some examples. Uh, first example from church uh, history, George Mueller is a tremendous example, the man who cared for 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. And uh, the, he gave three central reasons for starting the orphanages. Okay, and this is really quite remarkable if you look at it. The three chief reasons for establishing an orphan house are, number one, that God may be glorified should he be pleased to furnish me with the means in its being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in him and that thus the faith of his children may be strengthened. That's his first reason for setting up the orphanages. Look at reason number two and three and that makes number one so stunning. Number two, the spiritual welfare of fatherless and motherless children known as orphans. So the spiritual welfare of the orphans was number two. Isn't that striking? And then number three, their temporal welfare, that they would have enough to eat and clothes to wear. What a strange priority structure. All right, how would you put number one? What's his top priority in or starting the orphanage? That God may be glorified with what effect on the people of God? That they could learn what about God? That he is faithful and, I, and you, the more you read with Mueller that he is faithful in this world to take care of everything that concerns you. He will keep his promises to meet your needs here and now. And he, wants to, he wanted to put the orphanages up on, have God put himself on display 
by taking care of these orphans just by answered prayer, just as people would, would just pray that God would do that. He wanted the people of God's faith strengthened. Priority two, that the orphans would be cared for spiritually and priority three, physically. Quite remarkable uh, priority structure, I think. John Piper made some comments about this. I love this. Make no mistake about it. The order of these three goals is intentional. He makes that explicit over and over in his personal narrative. The orphan houses exist to display that God can be trusted and to encourage believers to take him at his word. He's putting God on display all the time. Look at God. Look what God can do. God can do things like this for you, that kind of thing. He's just feeding the faith of the people of God. He just wants it put on display. Uh, this was a deep sense of calling with Mueller. He said that God had given him the mercy in being able to take God by his word and rely upon it. He was grieved that so many believers were harassed and distressed in their minds or brought guilt on their consciences on account of not trusting the Lord in the Lord. This grace that he had to trust God's promises and this grief that so many believers didn't trust his promises shaped Mueller's entire life. This was his supreme passion to display with open proofs that God could be trusted with the practical side, practical affairs of life. Uh, this was the higher, higher aim of building the orphan houses and supporting them by asking God, not people, for money. Mueller wrote this. It seemed best to me, uh, to, it seemed to me best done by the establishing of an orphan, orphan house. In other words, I have this goal. What, what could I do? Oh, I know. I'll start an orphan house. It's just so different than what you'd think. You'd think he looks at these orphans and he'll, he feels sorry for them. He wants to minister to them. That's not what he does. He's looking at God and his glory and he wants the people of God to trust him more. How God-centered is that and how beautiful, really? So he said, I think the best way we could do this is by starting an orphanage. <laughs> if we could just start an orphanage and just, just fuel it and care for it and completely by faith through prayer, how awesome would that be? All right, it's just so beautiful. Uh, now, if I, a poor man... He said it needed to be something which could be seen even by the natural eye. Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. This, then, was the primary reason for establishing the orphan house. The first and primary object of the work was, and still is, that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it may st be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. It's all God. It's all about God, that God is this kind of a God. And, and also to help the people of God in whatever ministries they have, whatever their callings are, wherever they may be called to do, that God can do this for you too. And it still stands, doesn't it? I mean, you read this history and you're like, hey, wow, you know, maybe that could mean I could do a ministry like this that has nothing to do with orphans. It might be a whole different kind of ministry, but God is still the same kind of God. It's a beautiful thing, really, that Mueller has done there. He's really given us God more than a bunch of orphans that are well cared for. And the orphans matter, but they don't matter as much as the glory of God. And we need to say that. It's not a cold-hearted thing to say. The orphans themselves, if they're true believers, will tell you that. That God's glory means more than their physical support or their spiritual nurture. All right? By the way, Mueller then makes a careful distinction. This feeds right into our study tonight. He makes a careful distinction between what he called the gift of faith and the grace of faith. Remember how the spiritual gifts are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, and one of them is the gift of faith? And so he is adamant. He is adamant about the distinction between the grace of faith and the gift of faith. The difference between the gift and the grace of faith seems to me this. These are Mueller's words. According to the gift of faith, I am able to do a thing or believe a thing that will come to pass, the not doing of which or the not believing of which would not be sin. According to the grace of faith, I am able to do a thing or believe a th uh, that a thing will come to pass, res respecting which I have the word of God as the ground to rest upon, and therefore the not doing of it or the not believing of it would be sin. So it all comes down to this. There are certain gray areas of life or, or stuff not covered by the word of God. They may or may not be God's will. God hasn't spoken to them. The gift of faith then steps into those situations and enables the person, that person, to trust God for something he hasn't promised. It's consistent with the character of God, but God just hasn't spoken. And so God may give the gift of faith concerning a specific person who's sick that they will, in fact, be healed. And they are. And in that way, then, God reveals what his intentions are toward that specific individual, and it is to heal that person. But it wouldn't be sin not to believe that. 
because there's nothing directly in the word of God concerning it. And so God gives the gift of faith to specific individuals for those key times, like the moving of the fog. Remember, I told that story last week. He told the captain, you don't need to pray. Why? Because the fog's already moved. How did he know that? Gift of faith. God told him what he was doing. In that particular face, uh, situation, I will move the fog. It's moved. Don't worry about it. You don't need to pray anymore. It's gone. All right? That's the gift of faith. And God gives that to specific individuals in specific situations. The grace of faith is to give you the ability to trust God for things he said he would do. Like save your soul from sin if you trust in Jesus. That's the grace of faith. He's giving you the grace for salvation. And if you don't believe it, it's a sin because he said he would do it. You see the difference? Now, why is he so adamant about that? Because, you know, he says everybody, all Christians have the grace of faith. Not everyone has the gift of faith. And the difference is what? What's the difference? It's a question. Has God what? Has he promised about this thing or not? And if he has promised, then if you're Christian, you have the grace of faith to believe that promise. Yes, go ahead. Well, I, I, I'm just interested in the word creativity. I want to be linked to the promise historical, grammatically, correctly, all right? In other words, we're not going to stretch words beyond their breaking point. You know, for example, we'll, we'll look at some of the promises and see, you know, and see how far we can stretch them, you know? And by the way, when you talk about my son needs something like that, I've really learned to break all of the material things in my life into three categories, needs, conveniences, and luxuries, those are, that's a helpful category for me when I make a budget, when I pray, when I think about things, needs, conveniences, and luxuries. All right, what are needs? Yeah, you don't have it, you die. Okay, what would that be? Air, all right? Good thing about air, though. There's a really good thing when it comes to making a budget on air. What's that? Free. All right, so that's real good. All right? <laughs> Got to have air, though, all right? Um, definitely food, you know, food, clothing, shelter, you know, obviously. Those things are needs, and I think we would say that. And, and even Paul gives us that sense when he says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content. Um, notice he leaves shelter out. Of course, he's a guy that spent a day and a night in the open sea and that kind of thing. But at any rate, uh, long story short, certainly where I come from up in Massachusetts, needed a house. Um, but at any rate, so those are needs. Then there are conveniences. What would they be? A dishwasher. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's some debate on these things. I don't know. I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. We could spend a lot more time on this. All I'm saying is, you know, I think that's helpful, especially when you come to the promises. Stick to the point, Andy. All right. Um, so let's look at some examples now of people in Scripture trust or praying the promises of God back. There's actually a lot of them. I can't believe I left Moses off this thing, but you guys will just concede me Moses up on the mountain praying the promise of God back. He does. I was absolutely defective. You can take it to the Better Business Bureau of Biblical Teaching. How could you miss Moses? But anyway, there he is. But let's start with David. You remember how God made David a promise? Remember how David wants to build a house for him and Nathan the prophet tells him and makes him a promise. He says, you're not the one to build a house for me, but I'll build a house for you. Okay? When you're dead, I'll, you know, I'll raise up a son from your body and he will be the one to build a house for me. And there's a double hearing on that. Solomon, his physical son, did in fact build a temple, but it's his ultimate descendant, Jesus, who builds the real house. Isn't that beautiful? And so it's so beautiful. And David is just overwhelmed. And what does he do? He takes the promise back to God and says, well, look what he says. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you made concerning your servant in his house. What is he doing? He's saying, do it, God. You know, you've made this awesome promise. Now do it. All right. So that your name do as you have promised so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. That's a beautiful example of. Uh, you know, a man of God taking a promise and bringing it back to God and saying, do it. do it. Whatever you said, do it. The psalmist do it. Psalm 119, verse 38, fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. 
That's a very good example. We don't know what the promise is. But clearly, he's praying the promise back to God. So also Psalm 119, verse 58. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Okay, you made a promise that you'd be gracious, then do it. Be, 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 be gracious to me, as you said. Again, Psalm 119, verse 154. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Okay? Uh, then there's Isaiah and the watchman. Um, you have to read the context. You have to do a lot of context work on this one, but just take my word for it. They are praying the promises of God back. I posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and make her the, makes her the praise of the earth. That is a promise God has made in context. You read about it, arise and shine. Your light has come, O Zion, all that. You have to read the whole section. But basically what he's saying here is I'm going to put watchmen on your walls and they are not going to give God any rest until he does the thing he said he would do for Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing. All right. Then there's Daniel. This is a prime, prime example. I'm going to go over this really quickly. But God through Jeremiah said after 70 years he'd bring the people back. You can read the quote there. That's a promise. I'll bring them back to the land after 70 years. Daniel gets the scroll of Jeremiah. I think he literally got, got the physical scroll. I, I think there probably might have been a time there was only one copy of the book of Jeremiah on all the earth, and Daniel had it. Isn't that amazing? Because he was a contemporary of, uh, of, of Jeremiah's. Remember that, because Jeremiah was there when they turned the lights out, if you can use that expression in Jerusalem, when there's nothing left. And Daniel was a little boy as an exile who was led out of Jerusalem in one of the exiles that went to Babylon. They're definitely contemporaries, although Jeremiah would have been much older. And uh, I think he came to have a copy, clearly came to have a copy, if not the actual original of the book of uh, Jeremiah. And so it says in Daniel 9, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. I could go through the whole prayer, but he does a lot of confessing of sin. But then when he gets to the point, he says, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. What is he asking God to do? Rebuild Jerusalem. Bring the Jews back. Do the thing he said he would promise. That's exactly what's going on in Daniel 9. Daniel is praying the promises of God back to him. What's so incredible is God then sends an angel to Daniel and says, I want to tell you a little more. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little more. I'm going to send the people back and they're going to rebuild the sanctuary and then the people are going to rebel and they're going to be even more wicked than before and I'm going to send another army and they're going to completely destroy that sanctuary too and destroy the abomination of desolation. But in the midst of it all, I will send the Messiah in effect and he will, by his blood, finish sin in Israel. He'll put an end to sin, end to sacrifice, and finish it all. So he says, you know, you're praying right now, just so you know, you're praying for just a stepping stone in the whole redemptive history. Daniel, I have more to do than that. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. So awesome. Why would he tell Daniel all this extra information? It's because he loved Daniel. He wanted to involve him in what he was doing. Daniel was a faith-filled man, a faithful man. As a matter of fact, I think he gave Daniel a clearer vision of all that he was doing than maybe almost any prophet other than Isaiah. Just an amazing vision that Daniel had. In some ways clearer than Isaiah. Nehemiah does the same thing. He just prays back to God the same thing, you know, because he hears about the desolation and destruction of Jerusalem. He prays back that God would keep his promises. Um, Jesus is a very clear example. You have to read between the lines on this one, but do you have a sense that God the Father had made certain promises to Jesus? Like before the foundation of the world, I think that's really what we have with an intertrinitarian covenant that God promised or made a covenant with his son that if he died, that he would forgive the sins, that, that uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he made a promise to the son. And in effect, you know, much of John 17, much of that prayer is Jesus praying back to God the thing that God told him he would do. You know, for example, he says... Father, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. He's asking for the very thing that he said he would do. You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Later, he's going to pray in effect, please then give them eternal life that they may see my glory. Now, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In effect, he's praying the promises of God the Father back to him. 
John 17, 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And, and in the context, one means, or equals, may not be lost, that they may not go to hell, that they might not drop off like Judas did, the one doomed to destruction, that none of them may be lost. That's what he's praying for. So he says, Holy Father, protect them so that none of them will be lost. He's just praying the covenant back to God. He's saying, you said that none of them will be lost. Well, then be sure that none of them are lost. That's what he's doing. Again, John 17, 23. May they be brought to complete unity. Let the world know that you sent me. Again, the same thing. May the elect come to faith. That's what he's praying for. You just have to read it in context. But that's what he's saying. May, may these that will hear uh, and believe through their word, may they all be brought to complete unity. That's what he's asking for. Again, 24. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So what he's saying is, remember before the creation of the world, we talked about this. Remember we talked about these people who would come to faith and all that? Now do it. Do it. Save them. It's, a, it's an incredible thing that he's really doing. He's praying the covenant back to God. All right, the Apostle Paul, similar things. I, I could do better on Paul. You guys can work on ways that... Because we're going to do another study another time on Paul's prayers. But I was specifically looking for Paul praying the promises of God, and I didn't do great. I'd give myself like a B- minus here. But at any rate, um, 2 Corinthians 1.20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they're yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken to, uh, by us to the glory of God. You just have to imagine that Paul is constantly thinking about the promises, covenant promises of God, and is ordering his prayers along those lines. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Since then we have these promises, dear friends. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, why is that important? It's a stepping stone to anywhere he prays for that kind of stuff, he's praying the promises of God. Do you see it? So he says, we have these promises, so let's purify ourselves in holiness. Well, then when he prays for the holiness of the people that he's, uh, the church that he's planted, he's praying based on the promises of God. This is, this is probably the simplest one, clearest one. Revelation 22, 20. I love this one. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. That's a promise. So what does he say? Amen, come Lord Jesus. That's the clearest example ever you're going to get. Here's a promise and there's a prayer based on the promise. All right, I promise to come back. Please come, Jesus. You say, well, why in the world would we pray for the second coming of Christ? Isn't that like a done, isn't he definitely going to come? Yes, he's definitely going to come. All right, you say, well, why do it? I don't know, I can give a hundred different answers. That's kind of been the whole point tonight. But I think the thing is, line yourself back up with the fact that you want it to happen. And you can say, well, if I don't pray, will he not come back? Well, what do you think? <laughs> he's coming back, all right? He said he's coming back. But you still should pray for it. The apostle John prayed for it, didn't he? Come, amen, come, Lord Jesus. All right. Writer to Hebrews. Keep your, free, uh, your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never I leave you, never I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Uh, this is not a prayer per se, but it easily translates uh, to one, something like this. God, money is tight right now. You promise that you'll not forsake us. Please help us to be content. Those kind of things. We have these kind of promises. God has said, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. All right, what I've done now is I've given you a list of many uh, N. How many is N? Anyone know? A, B, C, D, N. 14? Thank you. Boy, that was good. Who said that? That's just scary. At any rate, um, 14 prayers. You know. Uh, prayers uh, or, or promises that are conducive to prayer. They're far more than this. All right, people write whole books on this. You can get them at the Christian bookstore. This is exactly the kind of stuff you find in Christian bookstores. So the promises of God, yeah, they're there. Um, but for God to glorify his name, all right? God has said, he said to Jesus, I will glorify it, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Well, there's a promise, right? So we should pray, God, you said you'd glorify your name again, glorify it again, all right? Is, that, is there any sense in praying that? Absolutely. You should pray that all the time. Father, glorify your name. All right? Isn't that kind of more or less the first request in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. May it be held in honor. May your name be esteemed and glorified. All right? For God to make Jesus' enemies a footstool. You know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay? There are many such things. God will make the enemies uh, of Jesus a footstool. Pray for it. Say, Lord, make your enemies, make, make Jesus' enemies a footstool for his feet. Uh, pray for the elect to be saved. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God made a promise concerning the elect. In effect, what you're doing is you're saying, God, keep your, keep your promise. Okay? Um, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Paul endured some prayer for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain that salvation with eternal glory? Yes, he did. He prayed for them. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Okay? Uh, pray for the gospel to advance among unreached people groups. Um, tell them I'm almost done. All right? I'm almost done. All right? Um, Matthew 24, 14. This, <laughs> this gospel. <laughs> that was a sweet moment. That really was. Thanks, sir. Is it Rita? Emily. Oh, Emily. All right. Well, I said hello. Um, this, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Okay. Will be preached in the whole world. Is it, all right, I'm done. All right. I'm sorry. You guys, you guys, um, you can go ahead and read the rest. Um, never mind. Hey, I worked hard on this stuff. We'll, we'll pick it up next week. All right. How's that? You know, we'll go over these next week. All right. Jack, would you close us in prayer, please? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.